Today, we come to one of the most bizarre stories in the Bible. In the last chapter of Exodus, we've seen the staggering grace of God coming to Moses in a burning bush and calling this very sinful and very flawed man to deliver Israel from slavery. And though Moses is pushed back and pushed back against God's plan multiple times, God continues to be patient with Moses, promising that he would be with him during this difficult task. But today, in the very next passage, God tries to kill Moses. Let's turn there now. Today we come to Exodus chapter 4. And we'll look at verses 18 through 31. Verse 18 of chapter 4. If you don't have your Bible, the words will be on the screen. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now, the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, so he may worship me. But you refused to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites. And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. This is God's word. Now, though this story seems very strange at first glance, it's really not as strange or unique as you might think. In fact, the pattern by which God deals with Moses here is the very same pattern by which God uses with all of us. 
And this pattern goes in three steps. If you have your outline, if you got a bulletin when you came in, let's go through the three steps God uses with Moses and God uses with us. Step number one in your outline. God gives us a promise. God gives us a promise. That's step number one. Back in chapter three, God promised Moses that he would use him to free the Israelites from slavery. And God promised to be with Moses every step of the way. And we see here in verses 19 19 through 23 that that promise is still very much intact. Okay? God is going to use Moses to free Israel. This is what God does with all of us. It's how he came to Abraham, Noah, Joseph, Jacob, everyone. He comes with a promise. That's how he arrives. And this makes the Christian God totally unique among world religions. All other gods come to you first with a moral law. A set of requirements you must meet. And if you meet those requirements, if you check all the boxes, then and only then can you be in a relationship with that God. Then and only then can you be used by that God for His service. But Yahweh doesn't come with a law. Yahweh comes with a promise. No law, no requirements. Yahweh comes to Moses, and he comes to me and you. And he just says, you. You. Dirty, sinful, rebellious you. I choose you. I love you. Christian salvation is completely, 100% by grace. By grace alone, and that grace alone comes through a promise. That's how it comes. That's how he comes to all of us. By grace, through a promise. But then, God does something totally unexpected. Step number two in your outline. God attacks the promise. God attacks the promise. Look at verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. (laughs) What kind of God do we have here? (laughs) What kind of God is this? What on earth is going on? God has called Moses with mighty signs and excellent words up to this point. So that there was really nothing more Moses could do to turn down God's calling of him. Moses tried. He tried very hard to turn down God's calling of him. But God had given him so many miracles, so many signs, so many promises that Moses just didn't have anywhere left to turn. So he couldn't. He could not turn down God's calling to him. God promised. He promised that he would be with Moses and that he would actually be in his mouth to speak the very words God wanted him to say. 
So, Moses sets off to Egypt with his wife and new children to do God's bidding. And then what happens? Suddenly and shockingly, God interrupts his own plan and tries to kill Moses. <laughs> Isn't this a foolish way to get something started? Yes. yes, it is. Great answer. This is a foolish way to get this great rescue, this great deliverance started. Right? This would be like God calling me to assassinate Hitler. And then God himself coming to assassinate me before I get to Huntsville Airport. This is foolish. Isn't it? Certainly seems so. But wouldn't you know it? God does this all the time. He does it all the time. God did exactly this same thing with Abraham. He promised Abraham that he would have a son, that his son's offspring would multiply as the sand of the sea, as the stars in the sky. And so, Abraham was confident in the promise. Okay? He was sure that his son Isaac would live a long and prosperous life and have many, many, many children. But... Before Isaac could even have a single child, what did God call Abraham to do? He called him to slaughter Isaac on the altar. He called him to sacrifice him. God did this exact thing with Joseph. He gave Joseph a dream that he would become a powerful leader and rule over his brothers. And what happened as soon as Joseph woke up? Uh, his brothers seized him and threw him down a well. Joseph would then spend the next 13 years in slavery and in prison. These are just three examples of many. Now, how can these two things be reconciled? How can God give a promise and then turn right around and attack his own promise? Human reason looks at this and says that God is crazy. God has lost his marbles. God must be a madman. This is something the devil would do, not God. But listen to me real close. Human reason gets us in a lot of trouble. Human reason is completely inadequate at figuring out the ways of God. Completely. One theologian says this, and I totally agree with him. Here's what he says. Quote, The sad reality is that the majority of Christians and even many theologians spend their whole lives trying to get God off the hook. End quote. <laughs> trying to get God off the hook for what he says and does in the Bible. Trying to get God off the hook 
for what he says and does in our lives. But you know what? The Bible makes absolutely no effort to get God off the hook. (laughs) No effort at all. Did you see any explanations given in our text today for what God was doing? No. No explanation given at all. And this is consistent throughout the Bible. God does shocking things, and there is no explanation given. This is why Martin Luther called him the outlaw God. The outlaw God. We can't control him. He doesn't do what we want. He doesn't do what we expect. He's an outlaw. God does as God wills. The Bible makes no effort to say anything else. Let's think about it together. If the Bible were trying to get God off the hook for who he is and what he does, who in the world would include this story in the Bible? Why would this story be here if the Bible was trying to exonerate God, trying to get him off the hook? It doesn't. The Bible makes no effort to get him off the hook. And to hear many Christians talk, here's what we do. No offense, okay? No offense, guys, but here's what we do. To hear many Christians talk, and I've heard so, so, so many, they apparently believe there are two gods. There are two gods in existence. Now, you wouldn't say it exactly like this, but this is how you function. This is how you think. I know because I thought this way for a long time. You believe there are two gods. In one corner is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And in the other corner is the big bad devil. And apparently, Jesus has this good plan for our lives. But then, sometimes, out of nowhere, the devil God, that mean old devil, he sneaks in behind Jesus' back and messes everything up. Right? It causes us to lose our job. It causes us to lose our spouse. It causes us to lose friends. It causes us to sin. He causes all kinds of mischief when Jesus isn't looking. And then we have to frantically wave our hands and cry out to Jesus to get his attention so that he can come and rescue us. That old devil, Jesus, he's back at it again. He snuck in there when you weren't looking, Jesus. I need you to come out. And then Jesus and the devil battle it out. And sometimes the devil wins. You know, hey, the devil just got me this time, you know. Sometimes Jesus wins. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This, folks, is absolute 
nonsense. It's unbiblical nonsense. But it's how a great many, I'd say the majority of Christians think. Let me let you in on a little secret. You ready? There is one and only one God. Just one. There are not two gods. And the devil doesn't sneak in and do anything. Haven't you ever read the book of Job? Would you like to know whose idea it was to torment Job? It wasn't the devil. <laughs> it was God's idea. God said to the devil, and I quote, Have you considered my servant Job? It was God's idea. And folks, the devil is nothing more than a dog on a leash. That's all that he is. He does nothing behind Jesus' back. And so, what I'm about to say may shock you. It may anger you. But actually, if you just think about it, it should give you a great amount of comfort. So here it is. The one God is totally in control of all things. Period. The one God is in control of all things. All things. The devil doesn't do anything to you without God's permission. Nothing. God is in control. And I understand this might make you uncomfortable. I understand you might think this makes God a bad guy. I get it makes you angry. I've been in dozens of counseling sessions with Christians and I get it. I get it. I know it, it makes you confused and angry. Because when you come to me with your tragedies and your hardships, I have to tell you the hard truth. The truth is God brought this hardship to you. God brought it to you. Not the devil. <laughs> okay? Not the devil. God brought it. And that's hard to hear. But I am sick and tired of trying to get God off the hook. <laughs> tired of it. I, I'm just tired of it. And I'm not going to do that. And so uh, you may want to go to a different counselor. Because <laughs> I have to tell you the hard truth. God brought it to you. I'm not going to get him off the hook for it. Because the only way to really get God off the hook is to create a two-gods system. It's the only way to do it. With Jesus in one corner and the devil in the other. And then just say, well, you know, the devil won this one. 
Jesus just lost this battle. Stinks, but he lost, you know. Sorry, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done doing that. I'm just going to tell you the truth. Because the two-God system is pure heresy. And it's extremely damaging to your soul. It's not the truth. There's one God. One God. And just as he tried to kill Moses, just as he told Abraham to kill his son, just as he allowed Israel to languish in slavery for 400 years and did nothing, that same God brought you your storm. Same God. It's the same God. And this is his pattern. He gives you a beautiful promise, right? The promise of grace, peace, and eternal life. And now, he himself is attacking that promise. <laughs> what kind of God do we have here? <laughs> we have the outlaw God. That's who we have. A God who doesn't play by our rules. Well, now, of course, the question you're asking at this point is, why? Why does God do this? Why would he give us a promise and then attack his own promise? Well, that brings us to the final step in your outline. The final step of this pattern. Step number three, God creates faith alone God creates faith alone why don't you go ahead and circle the word alone circle it now needless to say God's attack on Moses deeply frightens his wife Zipporah and so she frantically takes a knife and circumcises her son and puts the bloody foreskin on Moses. And then she describes the situation about as well as anyone could. <laughs> Literally translated, Zipporah says, Truly, you are a bloody husband. You are a bloody husband. Zipporah was in for a wild ride with this man and with this God. I mean, go with me for a second. Let's just pause right here. <laughs> what on earth is Zipporah, a Gentile, thinking now, right now at this moment of Israel's God? <laughs> what is she thinking of him? I mean, Moses told her that he was going against his will, by the way, to where he was a wanted man in Egypt in order to tell the Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the earth, to let the Israelites go so that Pharaoh will not let the Israelites go. <laughs> 
Did you notice that in our text? Look at verse 21 with me. <laughs> so that Pharaoh will not let them go. Look at verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. <laughs> what kind of God do we have here? <laughs> and now, before Moses could even get his foot out the door to do this fool's errand, the very same God attacks Moses at a lodging place, attempting to assassinate him. Zipporah is confused. <laughs> She's confused. And you probably are too. So why does God do this? Why does he use this pattern? Well, let's think together. Moses, at this point, has come to the end of himself. He's come to the end. Nothing remains of this man or his hope. He has had this incredible encounter with the living God at the burning bush. After 40 years wandering in the desert, and now this very same God has come to kill him. Nothing remains of Moses. And that's exactly where God wants him. It's exactly where God wants him. You see, even Moses, who would be remembered primarily as the vehicle for God's law, for the Ten Commandments, even Moses is ironically not made righteous by the law that he gave. The author of Hebrews tells us that Moses, along with his forefathers, were counted righteous because of their faith. Totally apart from the law. So... The promise is given. Then the attack follows. And in the end, is faith alone. And making faith is a bloody business. It's a bloody business. You see, you and me, hey, I'll raise my hand. All of our lives are spent putting our trust in the law. Putting our trust in our ability to obey it. Even if it is just our own watered-down version of it. We say, if I obey, then God will bless me. If I obey, then I will flourish. If I obey, then God will smile at me. If I just check all the boxes... I'm good. 
Moses was no different. God told him to go to Pharaoh. And so Moses, though reluctantly, he obeys. And what happens? Does God bless him? Does God smile at him? No. He tries to kill him. And God is repeatedly doing the same thing to us. <laughs> and we keep blaming the devil. It's hilarious. Keep blaming the devil. God gives us a promise, a beautiful promise, and then we immediately turn around and pledge allegiance to the law, ignoring the promise and pledge allegiance to the law. Why? Because we love the law. Oh, we love it. <laughs> oh, dear, do we love it. The law to us is, y'all have seen Lord of the Rings? We're kind of like Smeagol with the ring. Yeah. My precious. My precious. My precious law. <laughs> we love it. Why do we love it? Because the law puts us in the driver's seat. Right? It gives us the control. Forget the promise. Give me the law. Give me some boxes to check. Because then I'm in control. And God owes me. If I check the boxes, God owes me. If I go to church, if I put some money in the plate, if I start waving and smiling at my neighbor, if I start giving to the Salvation Army for Christmas, if I start donating to hurricane relief, if I start saying so many darn cuss words, then God owes me. God owes me. Then I'm in control. We don't like the promise. We hate the promise. We love the law. Because God's law puts us in control. We love it. It is our precious. Precious, precious, precious. And so what does God have to do? God has to proceed to extract from us our love of the law. That's what he must do. He must extract from us our trust in ourselves to obey the law. And this extraction from trusting the law is always a life and death struggle that ends with a desperate plea to the God who has attacked us. And what was Zipporah's desperate plea? How did she plead with this God? She circumcised her son. Now that seems bizarre. <laughs> but Zipporah is dead on the money here. She's dead on it. Because you have to know what circumcision is to see why she's so dead on the money. What is circumcision? Circumcision was not some law that Moses broke or forgot about. 
Circumcision was a pure gift from God to Abraham as a sign of the promise. <laughs> it was not a law. It was a promise. It was a sign of the promise. Circumcision was the seal on God's love letter to Abraham and his descendants. And Zipporah, who was not a descendant of these men, but she was desperate. And in her desperation, she had no other recourse. What else could she do but to throw God back onto his promise? What else could she do? So she took the sign of the promise given by God and hoped it would shield her husband from the wrath of the same God who made the promise to Moses in the first place. And that's exactly what God wanted her to do. Because it's the entire purpose of the sign. It's the whole purpose. It's the whole reason it was given. A sign from God is intended to be used in exactly this way. Exactly this way. As a lament or demand for God to remember his promise. Exactly what it's to be used for. A sign is not a requirement for a human deed in order to fulfill the law, but is a handle by which we turn God back onto his promise. That's what Zipporah did, and it worked. Look at verse 26. And God let him alone. Zipporah reminded God of his promise, and God relented. Because that's exactly what he wanted her to do. And the attack is so severe on Moses and on us because our hope in the law is so deep. It goes deep, baby. Tearing us away from our hope and trust in our own obedience to the law is no small business. We will not go quietly into the night. It's our precious. And we won't let the law go quietly. No, you see, creating faith is a bloody business. It certainly was for Moses. But Martin Luther makes an interesting comment about this story. He says, at this very moment, Moses essentially became the first Christian. Became the very first Christian. <laughs> and you know, the same way Moses became a Christian is the same way you and I do too. It was a bloody business making us Christians, you know. God brought us to the end of ourselves, He left us with nothing. No hope in our own abilities. No hope in our own righteousness. No hope in our own obedience to the law. The irony of this story is that Moses, the great mediator, himself needed a mediator in order to be saved. He needed someone else to shed his blood on Moses' behalf. 
It was the blood of Moses' son who would spare him from God's wrath. And it was the blood of another son that would spare you and me from God's wrath. To save Moses, Moses' son was cut. To save you and me, God's son was cut. Because creating faith and then growing that faith is a bloody business. It's a bloody business. This is the pattern that God uses to get us into the kingdom of faith. And it's what he uses to keep us in the kingdom of faith. You may not like it, but it's the only way to do it. We love the law too much. We trust ourselves too much. We trust the law too much. And that's why we try to come up with all these excuses for God. And why he does what he does and says what he says. It's because we love the law. And we're scared to death that he's taking it from us. Taking away the one thing that gives us our power. Golly, guys. <laughs> this text makes no attempt at explaining what God's doing, does it? But for thousands of years, Christians and theologians have done the most wild, incomprehensible, hermeneutical gymnastics to try to explain it. Well, maybe it was this, or maybe this really means that, or maybe that really means this. I'm tired of it. Let's just go with the text. <laughs> Let's just go with this outlaw God. This is the God who we are presented with. He is not the God of our dreams. He's not the God of our fancy. He's much, much, much better. He's the real God. And in his great love and wisdom, he brings us to the end of ourselves. To the end of the law. And where is that? It's at the foot of his son's cross. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. And so, God uses everything at his disposal to get us away from the law and to his son. He uses everything. Our trials, attacks from the devil, the preaching of the word, the taking of communion, our baptism, sickness, death, loss, everything. You're here this morning. He uses everything, even your attendance here today, to get you away from the law and to the cross. To get you to stop trusting yourself and your obedience. He's trying to leave you at the foot of the cross alone with nothing, absolutely nothing in your hands but faith. Faith alone. Not faith plus my church attendance. Not faith plus my niceness to my neighbor. Not faith plus the money I put in the plate. No. Faith alone. In Christ 
alone. Faith in the promise. <laughs> Faith in the promise who became flesh, dwelt among us, was cut, died for our sins to forgive us, and who rose again for our victory. And when we are there at the foot of Jesus' cross with nothing in our hands, then and only then will we join Moses and all the Israelites here in verse 31. Let's read it together. And they believed. <laughs> and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. <laughs> they bowed down and worshipped the Lamb 